Hi, this is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us a chance to check out some of the recent interviews and the guests that we've had on JM in the AM. Uh, Dr. David Rosemarin, the uh, head of the Center for Anxiety, joined us recently to discuss a very interesting program that's part of the Center for Anxiety. Uh, here was my conversation with Dr. David Rosemarin on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Dr. David Ross Marin is with us live via telephone. He's assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He is the founder and director of the uh, Center for Anxiety. Uh, we have pointed out that the Center for Anxiety has a, a location on West 57th Street in Manhattan, Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, Route 59 up in Suffern, and one up in Massachusetts as well. Dr. David Ross Marin, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. A pleasure. I hope the month of Adar helps ease some of the anxiety in our community. What do you think? Well, the only problem is that it leads into the month of Nissan, <laughs> and uh, we all know what happens then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to be a really regular guest coming up a couple of weeks from now. I can tell you that much. Our phone calls definitely go up. Uh, <laughs> well, <they> so. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Everyone who thinks that that's a myth, it's actually true. Finding out it's yeah. true makes it even worse, frankly. <laughs> Anyway, the Center for Anxiety is there uh, for our community. The phone number one eight 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 three seven seven four seven three. Again, that's eight 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 three seven seven four seven three. It's also a, an email address info at centerforanxiety.org, Info at centerforanxiety.org. And before we get to today's um, uh, topic, the intensive outpatient program, we should point out that you and your staff continue to offer regular support groups for uh, for a variety of things, whether it's an OCD support group, uh, whether it's specific events um, uh, which are put together uh, to um, uh, to encourage positive parenting skills and techniques, etc. Cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of regular um, get-togethers that are on your calendar in general. Uh, how about a word about that first? Yeah, we have a lot of things going on. Um, I'll say something which is relevant to the intensive outpatient program is that we have a DBT group, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Yeah. We started offering it um, about six months ago, and the program has been extremely powerful. Um, DBT is um, it's a, a very, it's a very powerful program. It's typically for individuals who have more um, severe symptoms, but it's also, uh, I mean, historically, it's been for people who have more severe symptoms. But we um, really use it for a lot of people, people having relationship stress, or people who are having difficulty focusing, people who are having uh, issues with a little bit of anger, um, as well as more uh, classic things like anxiety and depression. And so that's been really great. So that's dialectical behavior therapy, correct? That's right. And, and it's a skills group, which is 90 minutes a week that a person signs up for for about six months. Um, and it can be done in conjunction with individual psychotherapy or not. All right. So that's, an, that, that's a, a full course. You can't do that. You can't do that as a one-time deal. Well, um, no. You would sign up for, for the six-month program. Right. Um, we would want people to sign up for at least one of the modules, which is a quarter of that. Right. And, um, and but it is a course, like you said. It's right. really like a class that people take, and it's very well received. And you have those available everywhere in this area, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Rockland County. They're available in all three, right? Correct. We have groups. We have two groups in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn and one in Rockland County. That's correct. Information about the DBT skills groups, you'll find it right away at the Center for Anxiety <laughs> website, centerforanxiety.org. Again, centerforanxiety.org. All right. Um, today we're speaking about the intensive outpatient program. This is something that people may not be aware is under your umbrella. Uh, so first off, what is an intensive outpatient program? 
Yeah, the Intensive Outpatient Program, also known as an IOP, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool program. It serves really two functions. The first is a lot of people, well, I guess I'll start even before then. Um, there's an impression that many people have uh, that therapy is a long, drawn-out process involving purging the, the demons of the past and going into one's history, speaking about their parents. And, and first of all, with my clinic, that's just not the case. And for some people, I guess, if they want to, after a course of you know, evidence-based short-term treatment, but it's it's a shorter term process with us. The IOP though uh, takes that and um, and and squares it or even cubes it because we're able to get in many cases results in a week or two of intensive treatment. And what that means is people coming either on a daily basis. Sometimes we can get away with three or four times a week for a week or two and have an intensive immersion in skills-based psychotherapy with some pretty dramatic results. Unbelievable. And normally a, a course like that could take a lot longer than 10 days. Well, if you just add up the number of hours, I mean, yeah. if people are coming three hours a day for a week, you know, that, that would be 15 hours, 12 to 15 hours. Yeah, but again, um, the impression is, at least I think so, that it's not just you know the intensity hours-wise, but it does need to be drawn out over a period of weeks or months. Correct. And that's not true. Our data is pretty uh, compelling on the IOP program. We just were crunching the numbers last week. As you know, we're a research clinic as well, and right. we're always evaluating our patients and seeing how they're doing and faring. And um, all of our IOP patients, we've had about 25 in the last year, and all of them had a very significant drop in, in, uh, in symptoms. Um, and some of them, the magnitude was really quite astounding, despite, despite the short length of treatment. Mm. The IOP, the intensive outpatient program, is ideal for who? What type of patients with what symptoms or what situations would most benefit from it? It's a great question. So like I, was trying, I, like I was saying before, there are really two categories. The first are people who just want to get uh, treatment done relatively quickly. And for those people, firstly, not, not everybody would be eligible for that. But um, people who have, uh, it could be obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's ideally somebody who's never been treated. Right. Um, but somebody who has uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder could come in. Someone who has panic disorder, that responds very well to the IOP format. Social anxiety disorder, people who are very nervous in social situations and apprehensive about how other people think about them, they could respond well to it. Um, someone with general anxiety is usually less suitable candidate. Sometimes we would do an IOP, uh, like a shorter abbreviated IOP, and then have them continue in longer-term treatment after that. So GAD is less responsive. Depression is less responsive um, for shorter-term treatment. But um, a specific phobia, get this, you're going to love this. If someone comes in with a specific phobia, that's a specific, highly specific fear of, say, animals, uh, dogs, cats, uh, spiders, mice, uh, I don't know, snakes. Snakes are very common. Um, they have a fear of flying, fear of elevators. I don't know if you believe this. We can get them in and out of treatment in one day. Hypnosis? No, no hypnosis. Exposure therapy. We help them to face their fear in a graduated way. You would take you would take someone with fear of driving immediately into a car on the highway. Well, we might it might take an hour or two, but pretty much immediately. They do have to be willing to face their fear, but we coach them through it, and we help them, and we make it graduated. I'm not, I'm not afraid of driving, and it sounds scary <laughs> to do it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been over the Verrazano Narrows Bridge many, many times with uh, people while they're having panic attacks, and uh, 
it's it's a lot of fun. I love my work. <laughs> Can only imagine. Dr. David Rossmarin is with us, centerforanxiety.org. Uh, you in, in this type, forget forget for a moment the, the, the two hour you know fear uh, program, but the general IOP. You would not right. you would not see someone younger than, and you not you would not see someone older than what ages? It's a good question. We have had patients in the IOP as young as I think we have a six or a seven year old right now. They're not in intimidated by it. No, we they they do really well. In fact, they're they sometimes do better than adults because they just need the guidance and then they'll actually listen. Gosh. An adult comes in with all sorts of preconceived notions, yeah, but true. you know the kids just like well, tell me what to do and I'll get out of it. And older, I mean, you would do- older than it depends on the individual. Really, I wouldn't say that there's an age cap. I right. don't think we've seen anybody older than about sixty-five. But in theory, you could. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess why not. Um, yeah, I was going to tell you the second category of people who it's good for. Yeah, we've and this has been really interesting. We've used the IOP format to service individuals who have severe and complex symptoms, who potentially could even be in a hospital. Now, if somebody's acutely suicidal or going to hurt themselves or someone else or something like that, then of course you know they would need a hospital setting. But just under that, if a person can commit to safety, and even if they're you know, God forbid, harming themselves or um, really grappling with, you know, should I be alive or something more serious or very uh, severe panic attacks or depression that they can't um, go to work or they can't function day to day. Our IOP has been very effective for those um, severe, if you will, crisis cases as well. I don't, now, I don't see how that group differs in the first group. Um, well, the first group are higher functioning people who just need a course of psychotherapy and don't have the time to do it um, on, on terms of weeks. and, and Right, Ascent, Ascent, essentially quickly. treating the symptoms, right. Correct. The right. second group, I wouldn't say that we would, if you will, cure them. Right. But what we do is we prevent them from going into the hospital in many cases. We can um, get them to be a place that they're functioning, that they can then actually go on to a course of outpatient psychotherapy and 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 get their life together subsequently. Is the IOP program available at the uh, at all the uh, locations? Manhattan, Brooklyn, Rockland County. Yes, in all three we do provide IOP. In Manhattan, we provide the most, um, but in all three locations, we're able, re- willing, and ready and able. My staff are are on are on call. And you could cite at this point plenty of people in our community who've improved their lives because of it. Yeah, out of the 25 or so people in the last year, more than half have been from our community. And uh, in at least two cases, of those cases, that is, we they were more intensive cases, and they, they would have ended up in a hospital. Right. Is the intake difficult? I know when I go for surgery, you know, it's hard, hard for me to recall every surgery I've had, you know, on my feet in the past. Is it, is it intensive the first couple hours when people have to really dig deep into their own history and, and you know, and, and try try to relate to the to the to to your staff, you know, what it is that got them to this point? No, not at all. I mean, our, our intake's pretty non-invasive. We, we have a series of questionnaires that we ask. Uh, that people fill out on their own. In fact, you don't even you're not even engaging with the clinician when you're filling out the questionnaire. Right. And then a series of standard questions, and then we determine eligibility and whether a person's a suitable candidate. And then we offer them their treatment options and go from there. Unbelievable. Uh, all the information for the intensive outpatient program, the IOP at the Center for Anxiety, uh, 
888-837-7473. That's 888-837-7473. Dr. David Rossmer and his staff uh, welcome you to uh, to take advantage of their services. You can email info at centerforanxiety.org and obviously more information if you go to the web at the centerforanxiety.org. You can see and read more about what they do. In terms of our listeners, the uh, <coughs> the three locations we highlight West 57th Street in Manhattan, Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, Route 59 up in Rockland County. And again, there is one up in Massachusetts in Belmont, Mass. as well. Dr. Ross Marin, anything else you'd like to add on this topic? No, I'm just grateful to be able to provide the service. I mean, it's uh, I'll, I'll say this, that the hospital experience for many people is very deeply stigmatizing. Oh, yeah. um, sometimes you have, can you, I mean, you can imagine yep. being in a, a psychiatric hospital can be very, it can be challenging. Sure. Um, and if you know if somebody has to go, then then you go. There's no question. And we have sent people to the hospital. But if we can prevent any number of individuals, especially from our community, from having to go through that, it's uh, it's a tremendous gift. Yeah, well worth it and uh, a big accomplishment. Uh, Kalakavo, thanks so much for joining us. A happy Purim to you, and I hope Adar is in fact uh, a very cheery month because you know what's around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Okay, have a great day. Dr. David Ross Marin, Center for Anxiety. Check it out online, centerforanxiety.org. The phone number 1-888-837-7473. That was my most recent conversation with Dr. David Rose Marin of the Center for Anxiety. Many of you are aware of the fact that the Yeshiva University Maccabees, the men's basketball team, they are Skyline Conference champions. And the day after the big championship on Sunday, we had an opportunity to speak with uh, Elliot Steinmetz, the coach of the YU Max. Here's that conversation on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Tanis Esther is Wednesday, Wednesday night, and Thursday is Purim, and um, that might actually pose a challenge for our next guest. He is the coach of the champion Yeshiva University Maccabees, who yesterday defeated Purchase in Purchase on the road to win the Skyline Conference Championship in men's basketball. They are, for the very first time, the Maccabees, going to the the Division Three March Madness. Later today, their official invitation to March Madness will be issued. And this basketball program that we've been following for longer than I would ever care to admit. <laughs> My brother said to me yesterday how he remembers me following Yeshiva basketball as a kid. Um, and a program that is, I don't know, close to 90 or 100 years old at this point, finally can brag about being champions. Coach Elliot Steinmetz, welcome back to JM in the AM. Hey, thank you, Nachum. Mazel tov. Thank you. I, mean, it. I, I assume you've been accepting those wishes <laughs> ever since the game ended yesterday. And, and one of the most amazing feelings I had, and I'm just a fan, I'm just a guy who loves talking about YU basketball, one of the most amazing feelings I had is everywhere I went yesterday, I had a couple of events after the game, people who know nothing about basketball, people who have never stepped foot on Yeshiva University's campus, they are all congratulating everybody. They're all feeling as if this was a big victory for the entire community. I would assume in your position you're getting a lot of that. Yeah, um, my phone's been really streaming text messages and obviously social media and emails uh, for, for the last uh, bunch of hours, which is uh, 
definitely a lot of fun and overwhelming, but it's uh, it's really cool to see the impact it's had. You know, kind of I would I would even say worldwide. I mean, every every you know internationally, we're hearing from people that were oh, watching yeah. the game yesterday online. It's great. Oh, yeah. It's really fun. Certainly worldwide. There are people who've been following YU basketball for a long time, and again, as I said, people who know nothing about YU but realize that there's a team of yeshiva guys who are who are representing the Jewish people. On the basketball court, must be a good feeling to shoot sixty three percent from the three point range in the first half, huh? <laughs> that, that helps a little bit. <laughs> that does help, doesn't it? That ball was going in, and it, and, I'll, and I'll tell you one thing that really impresses me about your team is that they they play till the end. It is it, it is amazing. You know, if there's one message I would say to your players, it's amazing how they leave it all on the court. And I know that that's a uh, you know a phrase and an expression and something that coaches say all the time. But it seems your guys know what it's like to play until there are zeros on the scoreboard. It's true. I mean, we've had a very trying season. We've had a lot of injuries. We had a point in the season for about three or four weeks where we only had seven guys dressing for games. So you know, these guys really learned how to kind of fight through anything. Um, you know, play a lot of minutes and really finish out games and close out games, even in tough situations. So it's really a testament to them and, and kind of going through all that adversity and, and you know, learning how to make it a, a positive by the end of the season. What was the message at halftime? You did have a lead at halftime. What was the message? The message was really just to kind of, you know, try to adjust, you know, based on, you know, to basically to assume we weren't going to shoot 63% in the second half of three, <laughs> right. to try to try to make some adjustments and be able to get, you know, a little bit of uh, easier looks at the basket and, and obviously just continue to defend and rebound so that we could, you know, win the half. Yeah, unbelievable. Elliot Steinmetz with us, champion Yeshiva University coach. They go to the Division Three March Madness. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, toward the end, not even toward the end, the middle of the second half, um, it, it felt like an eternity getting to about the 10-minute mark, and there was a timeout with around 10 minutes left to go. And I was wondering if the, if the message you were giving the team in the huddle was something like, this is going to be the longest 10 minutes of your lives. So don't think that this game is coming to an end anytime soon. You're going to have to work like crazy in order to get to the final moments. Did it feel like that, that the final 10 minutes just kept crawling? It does. It's always like that. And then obviously it starts to speed up once they come back and, and you know, get closer, tie the game, take a lead, and then, you know, kind of fighting for, for you know, take, fighting for position the rest of the way. Um, but, yeah, it's it's always like that. You know, we go into halftime, and, and you know, I remember going to halftime at Farmingdale. We're up 17, and I turned to uh, Benji Ritholtz, uh, one of my assistants, and I was like, okay, now I'm really nervous. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing last night. You go into halftime, you know, yesterday, you go into halftime with a lead, and, you know, you're trying to figure out how you can hold on to it because you know the other team is really good. And one of the strangest comments made to me yesterday at the half, one of the fans said to me, I'd rather be up by five than be up by 20. And I think that you understand what that means. As, as much as you'd prefer to be up by 20, I think you know what he means by that. <laughs> I, I get it. I'd rather be up by 20. <laughs> That's for sure. Elliot Steinmetz, coach of the champion Yeshiva University Maccabees, is with us live via telephone. Yesterday, the big victory that everybody is talking about, to say the least. And I'll say to you, before we talk about the next few days, let me say to you again what I've said to you before on the air. It is, uh, it, it's a team that's really easy to love. These guys seem like an amazing bunch of guys. They represent the Jewish people in glorious fashion. Anybody who thinks that one can't make an impact uh, uh, for the Jewish people on a basketball court is wrong as far as I'm concerned. I know, you, I know that you get that. And it, it just must be remarkable. As that, as that clock was counting down, you must have felt so great for them that they've done all they've done all year and they got to this point. 
Yeah, they're they're a great group, and and like you said, they're easy to love, and and lucky for us, they're pretty much all sophomores. So you know, right. we'll get the the bulk of them we'll have for the next couple of years back, which will be you know a lot of fun and. Uh, an enjoyable experience for the next few years, both on and off the court. They're really just great kids. Um, but yeah, wind, the clock's winding down, and you know, I'm kind of saying to myself, I, I recruited these kids to, you know, hopefully be, have a chance to win in the next couple of years, and I, I just can't believe they were able to do it as sophomores. It's unbelievable. What an incredible accomplishment, and uh, they deserve all the credit in the world. Now, I, you know, I, I try not to meddle. But I did, I, in this case, I did. I, I got a message uh, to the guys who were doing Max Live. I don't, I don't know, and they're young, so I have no, no time to, if they, uh, if they didn't, if they didn't get it. But I said, if you guys are up, you know, with a significant lead in the last minute of the game, they've got to tell the world through their medium that every single coach and player and assistant coach and fan is on that court right now <laughs> feeling, feeling what that team is feeling. And you know how many former players were in that room yesterday? How many former players of YU were in purchase yesterday just quelling with the accomplishment? And as far as I'm concerned, I think they had a right to quell. I think, I think the whole history of Yeshiva University basketball was there on that court yesterday. No, I agree completely. There, there were there were players that I've coached. There were players that Coach Halpert had for many years. That that you know many years ago that were there. There were there were a lot of older players there. You know from from past generations that were there to support us, which was awesome. Um, and they're all a part of it. There's no doubt. I mean, this this whole thing started you know a lot of years ago. This is uh, I'm just lucky enough to carry the baton forward and and you know be the one who's standing there now. But this this thing was built from the ground up many years ago. Yeah, it's amazing. Elliot Steinmetz with us, coaches. Why you? All right, before I ask you. About the next few days, last question about yesterday, and I don't know if coaches give an honest answer to this, but I hope you would. At what point during this season, because you know, <laughs> I could review for you, you know, exactly what your record was during each week during this season. Uh, at what point during the season did you think this could be done? Did you say to yourself, you know, if things break right and we stay healthy, we really could for the first time be champions? So, so we really always felt that way from the beginning, from the beginning of the year. The only issue we had were all these injuries, you know. So, you know, once we started losing players, it started to get very, very, uh, you know, very, very bleak, and it became very tough to kind of look forward on the season, um, you know. But as we started to get healthy, and obviously when uh, when Gabriel Eifer joined in January, he gave us a little bit of depth, and obviously a very talented player who who joined the mix. We started to kind of pick our heads up again and look forward and say, hey, you know, we're four and six in the conference. You know, we got to find a way to win, uh, you know, win twelve games and then get into the tournament, and that's exactly what we did. Unbelievable. All right. Uh, I love, you know how I love this. I love the fact that the nation is going to learn what Shabbos is all about because of you guys. Because if I'm not mistaken, uh, you're assuming, I know you have no confirmation yet, obviously, because this is happening at 1230 today, but you are assuming that whenever the first round game was scheduled, it was likely for this coming Friday night. Am I right? I believe that's the case. Yeah, my understanding is they play Friday Shabbos uh, or Friday night and then Shabbos right. afternoon, some, something of that sort. Um, you know, obviously accommodations will be made. <laughs> it, it, my understanding, and we won't know till later today, is that we would probably play Friday around noon, mm. and then either Saturday night or Sunday if we are to advance. All right, and you wouldn't know where that is yet, correct? No. Right. We'll find that out on the selection show at 1230. We're just wondering if there's a possibility of actually going and driving back to the New York area for Shabbos after the game. Uh, that was a discussion in my house last night. Uh, but then, on top of that, Nahum Siegel gets his dream. Not only does the nation learn about Shabbos, and the committee have to consider that Yeshiva University will refuse, obviously, uh, to play on Shabbos, but then you have this whole... Purim aspect. If you guys are playing Friday afternoon, I would assume Thursday is going to have to be balanced between Purim and basketball. Explain what the plan is for this week. 
Yeah, so we're, we're waiting to see exactly what happens today, but it, it's a possibility that Thursday will have to be a travel day for us, which will be uh, definitely interesting, and depending <laughs> on where we're going and what time we have to leave, um, you know, Rabbi Josh Joseph is offered to come and lay in Megillah. Nice! If we, need. Um, we may end up doing a perm suda as a team on the road somewhere. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, and then obviously depending on uh, what area we are and, you know, what kind of community in terms of Jewish communities are nearby, we may, we may look to borrow a gym just to get a practice in oh. at some point. I'm, I'm Elliot, this stuff gives me goosebumps and chills. I'm telling you, the fact that that Purim becomes a factor and that you're forced, as you just described, to have a Purim suited together as a team, it's just amazing. I think I think it's great timing, if you ask me. Yeah, I think it's really cool, and it's obviously made for uh, great you know, great rally cries in the crowds at these games. So. <laughs> yeah, the Mishanich Lazadar is really, I'll tell you, that gets you guys going, that's for sure. It's what, yep. I, oh, and by the way, by the way, I can't let this conversation end without you acknowledging the hundreds of people that were there yesterday as the sixth man, as the expression goes, uh, supporting YU. It, it must have been amazing to be on the road in a championship game and in many ways feeling like it's a home game. It did. It felt like it was home. It was really just a special atmosphere, and then you know, you know, the guys. Could, we, we we went out to dinner afterwards as a team, and all the guys could talk about was how awesome it was to have support from the community and have all those people show up at the gym for that game. Well, unbelievable. By the way, last night I placed a call to Mr. Aaron Kindlerer, who is out of town for the weekend. Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, he is among the greatest YU fans of, uh, of of the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. You know how many games he's been to, etc. Uh, he was at all of mine when I was playing. Wow. Unbelievable. So he was yelling at the ref for you, huh? <laughs> yeah. I, I actually think I could have heard him from wherever he was yesterday. <laughs> so I said I, I had to call him with some mazel tov. There are a lot of people, a lot of people who have felt this connection for so many years who were just celebrating. I, I had, like I say, I had people in my own life who uh, – you know, realized how important this was to me and just felt great that all this was going on. And these, these kids did such a remarkable job. And every time you needed a big play, and we know how often anybody who follows the NBA or any type of basketball, how often their teams let them down when you, when you need a big shot or a big play. But yesterday, just like the rest of this season, every time you needed a big rebound, every time you needed a big layup, every time you needed a big three, it seemed you guys always responded. So it was just remarkable watching them. And uh, what, what can I say? Congratulations. Just the, the whole thing is remarkable. And now t- today, can't wait for today. Will the team be together when you find out all this info about the uh, March Madness? We will. We're, we're going to get together at about 12.15, uh, uh, have lunch, and then watch the selection show together. Boy, oh boy. And you have no idea where you'll be or who you'll play at. But that must be a challenge for you. The moment you find out about the team, meaning the identity of the team who's your opponent, you've got to start watching film and preparing for them. Yeah, the way it works, I think you actually have to prepare for three teams at a time, especially with the Shabbos issue. Uh, we'll yeah. play Friday. We'll probably play again Saturday night. You know, depending on if, if we were to win on Friday, we'd have to turn around and be ready for two, you know, two potential teams Saturday night, depending on who wins the other game. Gosh, I'll tell you. So Friday night's Miros, followed by a schmooze about the opponent for Saturday night. I'm, I'm going to have to talk to Rav Schachter about that one. <laughs> Elliot, you're amazing. Thank you. So congratulations again. Thank you so much for, for joining us all these times during the year and continued success. As we know, you are champions, but there's more work to be done, right? There always is. We're, you know, we're, we're not satisfied. We're always looking forward for the next game. We want to keep playing. Amazing. Good luck this weekend and happy Purim and to the entire team. Enjoy this incredible Purim and Shabbos together. Uh, really remarkable what you've done and the Jewish people are the beneficiaries of it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Elliot Steinmetz, he is the coach of the champion Yeshiva University Maccabees. The Max. 
are number one in the Skyline Conference. They had never, they had never been involved in any type of championship round where they went to the final and won the final game. This is the first time in their history. And as you could uh, see, or as you could hear from the word on the street and those who are talking about YU basketball, who know nothing about YU, who know nothing about basketball, (laughs) you could see that this has made quite an impression on our community. And we are very, very proud. That was my conversation with uh, Elliot Steinmetz, coach of the Skyline Conference champions, the Yeshiva University Maccabees. Recently, I spoke with Rabbi Menachem Ganak. Rabbi Ganak is responsible for the Megillat Esther Mesorah Tarav, a commentary based on the teachings of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. It is a Koran OU Press production. Uh, Rabbi Ganak is among the people uh, that are responsible for this incredible work. Um, we had the opportunity to speak with him about this Megillas Esther of the Rav. Uh, here is that conversation on this edition of JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi Joseph Karasik is with us live via telephone. He is author of the book 13 Steps, Orthodox Judaism in America Comes of Age, My Life and Times. Give me, give me a moment, folks, before I, I welcome Rabbi Karasik to the air <clears throat> to read his bio which is fascinating in and of itself. Rabbi Joseph Karasik was born in Minsk in 1922, came to America the following year with his family who settled in San Francisco with his grandfather, Rabbi Gershon Katzman. After receiving his primary education in California and Seattle, he crossed the country to attend Yeshiva University, serving as editor of YU's commentator during his undergraduate years and graduating from Yeshiva College in 1943. Continued to Ritz, where he studied with Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, receiving rabbinic ordination in 1945. Rabbi Karasik assumed the pulpit of Sheirat Israel, the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue of Montreal, Canada. Shortly after, he left the position to go into business. A longtime Orthodox Union board member and leader in the Orthodox community, Rabbi Karasik served as president of the OU, 1966 to 1972, and chairman of its board from 72 to 78. Rabbi Karasik was the recipient of the Lifetime Leadership Award at the 108th OU National Dinner in 2006, and the OU Department of Synagogue Services was named the Peppa and Rabbi Joseph Karasik Department of Synagogue Services. The book is called 13 Steps, Orthodox Judaism in America Comes of Age, My Life and Times. Rabbi Joseph Karasik, welcome to JM in the Air. Thank you very much. A pleasure to have you on the air, and I thoroughly enjoyed the book. took me back to uh, took me back to an era that I recall as a youth, and uh, I'm going to try my best to convey and to uh, review all of this for our readers to the point where I hope they pick up the book and learn a lot about modern Jewish history. Let me start with this, Rabbi Karasik. You you had this unique experience of leading the um, of being in a leadership position in the Jewish world, both as a rabbi and as a lay leader. Which one has a more direct and positive effect on the Jewish community? One that couldn't be one without the other. If I had remained a pulpit rabbi, as we call it, I never would have crossed the boundaries into the bigger Jewish world. 
On the other hand, if I didn't have my rabbinic uh, training, my rabbinic background, and I went into the uh, into the communal world, I would have missed a lot. It's very interesting. The OU is a uh, lay organization. Right. And when I became president, I was still uh, keeping my title, Rabbi Joseph Karasik. And uh, my first act was to sit down with my officers and said, uh, guys, uh, do you, what do you want me to do? Do you want, uh, do you want me to be Mr. Joseph Karasik or Rabbi Joseph Karasik? So I would be the first a religious, quote, a leader of the OU. And they all said, very interesting, they all said, we want you to maintain the title rabbi, because if you have that title, you could speak to other rabbis. You could speak to rabbis who are much uh, higher than you, much more important than you, mm. and speak on a certain level playing field. And I found that to be true. You could speak with rabbinic authority. I spoke with with the authority of the president of the OU, who had been a rabbi and who knew the business pretty well. And wherever I went, and, I, and as, as my book would show, I met practically all the gedolim, from Reb Shach, Reb Moshe, and so on and so on, and they all gave me a little more covered because of my title. Right, understood. All right, Joseph Karasik is with us. Um, one of the things that, that I, I, I've always, I've always, I, I was always told growing up, let's put it that way, uh, that one of the roles that a rabbi, a synagogue rabbi had in the era when you served as rabbi, today would be covered by different organizations. For instance, if there was uh, an issue with a uh, another um, uh, another religious group in town of a, of another faith, or if there was uh, an issue with the medical examiner, and uh, you know there were there were uh, autopsies that were being encouraged that had to be discouraged by the rabbinate. Today we have organizations and organized efforts that take care of these things. But in those days, it was the rabbi, uh, the rabbi of the community, based on their personal relationships with people in the community in different positions who would have to step in and take care of these matters. Would that be a, a good distinction between being a pulpit rabbi then and today? Sir, I, that's a very, very good point that you raise. The rabbi in those days, and, the, and I'm talking, <laughs> talking that they were talking about 1965, 66, 70s, and so on, the rabbi had a completely different role. He was the father of the community. Everybody turned to him. And he had that built-in authority, which today I'm afraid the rabbis, the younger rabbis today are, uh, quote, Harvard type. They're more career-minded uh, it's a business like any other business, except it's in the rabbinate. In those days, there was much more warmth and uh, uh, problem-solving. People were coming with all all sorts of problems, and we had to be ready to do that. Now, in fact, in my particular case, it was 
a, a little difficult because I was became rabbi when I was 24 years old of the Spanish and Portuguese. And how much experience in life did I have? Never did I have. Nevertheless, people came to me. They listened to what I had to say, and we kept on going. That is a big, big difference. What about education in the shul? You know, today, a rabbi can be in, in almost every major Jewish community and be surrounded by congregants who are really well-educated. Did you feel the responsibility that essentially whatever it was that you discussed from the pulpit or in your shiurim in the shul was really the extent of the Jewish education of the of the majority of your congregants? Unfortunately, when I became president in 66, we had the, the younger generation, uh, I, what today I think you would call them the millennial and so on. Don't forget most of them came out of the army. Right. And when they kids they had no they and they had no day school to go to before. Right. They were in the army for four or five, six years. They came out, they knew practically nothing. And uh I I had that situation where I was dealing with people who knew very, very little about our faith and about uh, about what we believed believed in and so on. And it was difficult. It was difficult to explain uh, these concepts to them. Today, uh, uh, you have guys in the in the uh, congregation who uh, have gone to yeshiva, uh, have have learned very much, and who know more than the rabbis do. Right. It wasn't in my case. Right. Rabbi Joseph Karasik is with us. Uh, I mentioned in the uh, in the intro that uh, you spend your your youth in uh, San Francisco and Seattle. Uh, were there other Jews? How were you educated Jewishly in that era? Very good question. In San Francisco, where my grandfather was robbed for almost 40 years, the situation was very difficult. San Francisco was a, was a uh, strong central point for reformed Jewry. You had Jews who came there for the gold rush, and they began to establish themselves on banking in in uh, in trade and so on and they controlled everything that happened in San Francisco except for one thing they had tolerance they had tolerance with my grandfather when he came for various problems on kosherus and so on they listened to him and in fact i don't know if i mentioned in my book or not in fact they gave me a scholarship to YU. Now, why? Because they were so proud of a young man who was going into the rabbinate that they said, listen, we're going to take care of this. So that's one hand. On the other hand, there was a youth that knew a lot. We had an excellent Talmud Torah, but a youth that did not practice at all, did not practice kashas, did not practice Shemir Shabbos, and I was part of that youth, and my grandfather and my parents were panicky. What are we going to do with this guy? And then the Rabbi Wogelanter, the rabbi of Seattle, was visiting my grandfather on a question of on Shilas and so on, and he sees me sitting there and says to my grandfather, who is this young man? He says, my grandson. What is he doing? And my grandfather had trouble trying to tell him I was really not doing that much, <laughs> and there wasn't much that I could do. So Rabbi Bokalanter said, 
send them up to me to, to Seattle. In Seattle, they had started, uh, started a uh, somewhat uh, yeshiva or a group that met. We all went to public high schools. Uh, that after after school we would come and sit and learn for a couple hours, and it was the beginning of the yeshiva atmosphere, and that's really what saved me. And I also want to, if I could have the time, that I was 14 years old when I left San Francisco. And you tell you, let's look at your son, who is 14 years old today, and look at him and send him out into the world on his own. I mean, it's ludicrous. And I went out, and I was in big danger. Imagine sending a kid out at 14, and then going to six years in yeshiva on my own. My parents were 3,000 miles away from me. And I could have, there were so many pitfalls on the way. And Baruch Hashem, I had the siyata d'shmaya. Unbelievable. Rabbi Joseph Karasik with us. What year did you get to yeshiva university? Got there in 19, what is it? 1939. Uh, I don't know if you've been there recently. What could you tell today's students about what it was like back then? I have been invited to YU to speak to the Smitha students because I had experience both as a pulpit rabbi and in the business world. And I found the boys very, very smart, very intelligent, and been looking in the rabbinate, as I said before, as you were looking and going to work for uh, uh, for the, the Bank of America, they're very, very, <laughs> very, very uh, cool about it, and they were pumping me and pumping me. What about this? What about that? What about this situation and that situation? And they take their careers very, very seriously. Aside from his brilliant uh, academician. Uh uh, reputation and his brilliant um, a career as a Talmudic lecturer. What else can you tell us about Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik? Well, my case was was a individual case. When I entered the Rav Shear, my grandfather, who was not a young man, hopped on the train from San Francisco to New York. It wasn't much. Three days and four nights. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> to come to New York, introduce himself to the Rav, and told him, my grandson is going to your shear. Please watch him. Keep, I say, Varfanoig of him. Watch him. See what he does. Kilanar Hazei This is what he told the Rav. Wow. And the Rav was so touched that he promised my grandfather that he would do that. And for the next 40 years, the Rav was my teacher, my mentor, my whatever you wanted. And what greater covet and what greater pleasure could a young man have than being so close to the Rav? And that's why I say, beyond the academics and his brilliance uh, of a reputation as a lecturer, many don't realize uh, how, how he had the ability to become close to a student and how students would gravitate toward him and really hang on his every word. Yet, yet it's strange. I, I don't know. I knew the Rav quite well. I don't know if his entire career he was actually close to more than five or six students. Wow. And uh, he was by nature shy. You know, and he, was, he, did, he didn't want to, 
to make it difficult for, especially for students. And uh, in my book, I uh, I publish the uh, Russia that he gave at my at my grandson's pidyon event. Yep, I read that. Yep, describing the relationship among the generations, right. and when he would come into his shear in the morning from Boston, all tired out, and looking at these 80, 90, 100 kids, looking up at him all with fresh faces, and he was so tired. But after he gave his shear, we, as he quotes so beautifully, Rabbi Akiva walks in, and Rabbi Chaim walks in, right. and, and the Rambam walks in, right. <laughs> and he sees a change that these guys, that the students, are all tired, and he's fresh as could be. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. You also, by the way, I mean, there's so much to talk about. We're not going to get to everything, but I, I have to mention you have an amazing piece in the back of the book <clears throat> where you you print what you had written at that time in 1967, your impressions in the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War. I'd like your permission for me to uh, to record that in a spoken word format. Uh, so that we have it for posterity. I think it is one. Of, I think that letter is an absolutely brilliant essay. And for those of us who grew up with parents who never stopped speaking about Jerusalem pre and post Six Day War, it is so meaningful. With all, with pleasure, with really, pleasure. Really amazing, and I, that's one of the reasons I recommend this book. Um, and one of the problems with a book that I really like is I read it too early, and some of the things, some of the things I read, I've already, uh, I, I may have uh, forgotten. Uh, am I right or wrong that you mentioned that uh, you spent time in Baltimore? The first summer that I was in the yeshiva, Rav Gifter, who is later became the Rosh Yeshiva, tells had just come from uh, Europe, and uh, he that summer he wanted to have a chabura of uh, young uh, students, and he came from Baltimore, uh, and uh, he came to the yeshiva to ask for volunteers. I was one of those who volunteered to come to Baltimore, and to, and, Rob, and, and also with Rob Gifter, I became very, very close uh, as a Talmud Chover. And, and that was a, a Nair Yisrael experience? Or nothing oh, to, no, no, Nothing no, to do no, with no. the yeshiva, nothing to do with it the yeshiva. It was Rabbi Gifter's. Right. A personal thing, and uh, if you if you really want to know, that's when I first got the tom of how to learn. We learned the Dorim, mm. and the first time I got a tom of of how really to learn a piece of Gomorrah. And uh, all throughout all the years, I developed very good friendships in Baltimore and so on. Yeah, I, w- I was asking for a selfish reason because during that era, my grandfather Harav Yosef Segal was uh, the Mashkiach in. Uh, Near Yisrael, and I was wondering, uh, uh, was wondering if that uh, uh, if, if, this was a purely uh, right, a purely Rabbi Gifter's uh, effort. Now, lay leadership in the late sixties, early seventies, and that's uh, I think you would consider to be your most active era, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I said to you off the air, I'm somewhat familiar with it because that was uh, that was the period of time my father was the president of the RCA. I don't think people today realize the history that people like yourself helped guide. Because the time of the Six-Day War was so critical, so crucial, especially in terms of support, both financial and otherwise, from the, <clears throat> excuse me, from the American Jewish community. Could you give us a taste of what it was like to be in a leadership role when Washington and Jerusalem were making major decisions, frankly, about the future of the Jewish people? I became president of the OU 
In 66, the Six-Day War was in 67. The change in the Jewish world from 66 before the war to 67 after the war, they're really very, very difficult to describe it. Before the war, the Jewish community here, when I first was a sleepy, sleepy community, you didn't have the the Balabatan, as I said before, they didn't have the education. Suddenly the Six-Day War was an injection into the Jewish community that's impossible to describe. Suddenly, I was there, and I felt the change, and I had the good fortune of following up those the following years of my presidency in a completely different world. That's when when I had the big fight with the with the Russian Shivas and the others about uh, I I wanted the OU to become a world organization to unite to unite the activities of the OU with Orthodox communities throughout the world, and the Yeshiva world misinterpreted. They 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 confused the whole concept of Hegel Shlomo, which which was a a parochial battle which had nothing to do with what I had in mind. And uh, as my uh, children ask me very often, Daddy, how could you stand up in front of the Russian shivas and and to disregard them? And my answer was, I knew what 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 I wanted. And they had, and the stories that were given them were false stories, with the end being that Rabosha is the Chronicle of Racha, uh, who was one of my strongest opponents, ended up being my very, very closest friend. Once he understood what I had in mind, and at that particular time, we united Jewish communities of all over the world. And the Baruch Hashem, it was successful. It's a whole different world. Well, also, you 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 led during an era when uh, when it was possible for people to believe that a rabbinic leader might be wrong. Uh, today, unfortunately, that's not the case. Where we live in an era where there's this impression of infallibility among leadership, uh, something something that Moses himself, frankly, did not enjoy. Uh, but <laughs> I, I want to tell you, never, to my knowledge, never, 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 not even for one moment. Did I do anything to disparage of the leadership not. of the of, of the Gdolim, like Reb Moshe, Reb Yankov Kamenetsky, uh, the, the, and the Rebarn Cutler, and the whole group? Never, never did I say anything to disparage. Them. I would never suggest that. God forbid. All I'm saying is, as you just indicated, that there were times where it seemed likely that they were misinformed about different things. Were they were misinformed and. and the, if I had time, I'd tell you the story, but I go buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, people should buy the book, and I'm encouraging it, and you should know something. I am encouraging the 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 next generation of seagulls to get the book because so much of what we experienced, again, as I said, uh, uh, through my father's uh, ca- career, um, you bring to life. He never wrote a book, and for us this is so important because you bring so much of that to life, especially as you describe the era of the Six Day War, as you describe your relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, you know, r- r- real influential Jewish leaders of that time spent time with the Lubavitcher Rebbe because he realized 
how it, how important an investment it was to spend that time with influential and responsible Jewish leaders. And I'm sure you wear that with pride. Yeah, and I want to tell you that your father, Oliver Shalom, uh, and I were very, very friendly opponents. And I told you before, we had a, we had a, uh, well, I don't know how to have to watch my words there. <laughs> uh, we did. <laughs> we we were worthy opponents of one another. You bet. I'm probably one of the only guys around today who still remembers him. Tall, handsome guy who who was the boss of Newark, New Jersey, right? No question about that. And uh, you know, for for me being in being in the second half of this generation, I don't remember the golden era like my older siblings do. So it's important for me to hear these words from you. So I greatly appreciate that. Okay. Uh, the book is called 13 Steps, Orthodox Judaism in America Comes of Age. My Life and Times are by Joseph Karasik. I'm sure people are curious why it's called 13 Steps. That's actually something that has to do with this era, right? That's a development, a very recent development for you, the 13 right, Steps. Right, right. And people could read about that in your introduction and, uh, and find why you went ahead and named it that. And um, the relationship with your wife is, is, is wonderful and so heartwarming. How critical is it? Uh, what would you say to the young rabbis of, the, of today about taking advantage of their wife's dedication and their interest in what they're doing? How important is it to have a partner who understands how, how urgently important it is uh, to be part of the entire process? I want to tell you, the, my, my, my wife and I, we were married for 64 and a half years, and she was my companion but today, the Rebbitzin has a much, much bigger role because, first of all, the Rebbitzins are all very well educated. They went to Stern College, Beis Yaakov, and so on. And the demands upon them, we know we're in the midst of this big problem, what to do with the women in our communities, in our societies, in our synagogues. And today, the... the uh, the uh, wife that a young rabbi chooses has to be very, very careful. She has to be a smart girl. She has to have a wonderful education, and she has to stand with him side by side. I said I had a lovely wife, beautiful, great to go with her all over, but the demands on her were not nearly what the, what the demands on a young rabbi are today. Right. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh, you know, the uh, two of the big issues that have been covered uh, in the uh, Yeshiva University commentator in the last few days, in the last few days now in 2018, one is the um, uh, revelation by a new student at Yeshiva University about the uh, unfortunate lack of religious Zionism, at least through his eyes, on campus. And another one was um, a woman who uh, who was lamenting that uh, that there were opponents to her giving a Dvar Torah in shul. So we can call it, I guess, Israel issues and women's issues. When you were editor of the commentator, and I think that goes back, would you say about uh, 70 years or so? In 1960, when did I graduate? 1943. Oh, so I'm right. It's, a, it's almost that, that number of years. Were, were, those, were those among the major issues that college students were writing about and publishing? No, no, there was no. The issues, I had a very peculiar issue. It was during the wartime. 
I, when I when I went to YU and when I was editor of Kami, and my main message was to the Yeshiva boys: behave like the Yeshiva boys. The whole world, they were drafting them right and left from all the schools and colleges all over America. You are the lucky ones. You have to behave like the Yeshiva students, and when they see you on the street, they should know that this is a special young man. And that was my message that I tried to drive home, and I think I was successful. Also, in uh, I was, I think, among the very first of all the journalists, incidentally, by paper, under my editorship, received the award of the, uh, first of all, I was who's who on American colleges and campuses, and also the Kami got an award as one of the best college newspapers wow. at that particular time. But I, then I, I published the Holocaust issue, and this was in, uh, I get all my dates here, anyhow, uh, when I was a, uh, would that be would that be in the commentator archives? Oh yes, oh yes. It says that the whole edition is there to get it. It's it's available. I've seen it, uh, and uh, many of them have it on their computers. The issue where I where I began to disclose. Don't forget, this was in uh, the 1940s. Yeah. 1942, 41, 42, when the world had the Jewish world had no concept of all uh, at all about the about the Holocaust. Right. Suddenly, the news began to come out, and I published a whole issue on this. And at that time, it caused a considerable stir because people really, for the first time, began to know what what a Holocaust is. They had no idea beforehand what it was. Rabbi Karasik, what an honor for me to have you on. I, I know how important this book is. I just want you to know that. I know how important this book is, and I hope uh, everybody out there gets it. It's called 13 Steps, Orthodox Judaism in America Comes of Age, My Life and Times, by Joseph Karasik, an OU press release. It's an OU press release. Rabbi Karasik, would you know if this is available at the YU Sepharim sale? I was there. They, they, had, a, they had a special room for me there. At the sale, in fact, uh, Rabbi Herschel Schechter and Rabbi Mordechai Willig and others were there at that time, and uh, we did a very, very nice business That's at, great. The, at this forum sale. That's great. I hope everybody out there picks it up. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, and the Hatzlacha Rabbah with the book and everything, and best regards to the entire family. Thank you, Zev. Thank you very, very much. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> Another reference to my father, not a problem at all. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Rabbi Nachum Ganak. I encourage everybody out there to go and purchase Megillah Sester Mesora Sarav, uh, the uh, Megillah Sester with the commentary based on the teachings of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, a really incredible work, uh, a perfect way to enhance this year's Purim holiday. I thank you all for tuning in and being part of our JM Rewind program here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Plenty more coming up on a Tuesday here on NSN. And don't forget to tune into JM in the AM every single weekday morning beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time and to JM Rewind at 9 a.m. Eastern Time each and every Tuesday morning here at the Nahum Siegel Network.